Okay, let's get this started. All right. It's a uh, room room. We're starting the car to the 1931, 1932 roundup. Woo! Woo! Honk honk! Out of the way, freaks! <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award hibernation feast. I that yeah we just completed. I impulse bought a lot of chicken for fast food chicken. And now we're all quite full and confused, as I always am after fast food chicken. So it's going to be a weird energy I'm bringing to this roundup. But hopefully it'll be like the chicken, crispy and delicious. Yeah, yeah. It, we'll we'll keep up. Dripping we'll with gravy. Up. We won't fall asleep. Maybe. Okay. There slapping myself. Okay. Staying awake. Pinch, pinch. Okay, so uh, what we're doing in this podcast is we are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this episode is number 036. As Laura mentioned, the 1931 to 32 roundup. All right. We made it, guys. Ooh, it's been it's been quite a year. It's been a very eclectic <laughs> year, a very it, I'm really loving just the array of different genres we got here in different styles. Yeah. Um, and I think we actually have like some discussions for the big winner at the yeah, end of this for sure. I think this is definitely going to be the I mean, w- Wings versus Seventh Heaven was a little hard, but I was always pretty firmly in Seventh Heaven's camp. But I think you were, too. Right. Um, yeah. But this one. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a bit of a toughie. I think I've got my choice. But as we go through. I might change my mind. Who knows? I'm fickle. Yeah, I am. I, I have two maybe in mind, but I really haven't decided yet. So it's really going to come down to us reviewing it right here, right now. Right now. So hold on to your butts as the immortal line of Samuel <laughs> L. Jackson goes. Okay. Was Jurassic Park nominated for Best Picture? It had to have been. Gosh, you know what? I really don't know. Um Shall we take a moment to look yeah, it up? Yeah, let's take a moment to look it up. I mean, it had to be. It was such a big freaking deal. I think that's earned. It's one of those movies that once you watch it again and again, you're like, oh, wait, it is really good. It isn't just the special effects. That's true. It um, It's a great monster movie. It really is. It's kind of uh, kind of up there with Jaws. Yeah, well, it won the MTV Movie and TV Award for Best Mo- uh, Picture. Oh, that, that tracks. Yeah. Um... I can't find it right off the bat, so. so possibly. Possibly. Okay. There's only so much, uh, you know, that chicken energy I've got. You know, I've got, I've got to make <laughs> sure to spend it on, on, on 1931, 1932. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, so let's go in and we'll just review the, the movies a little bit. And then we'll make our final discussion about who we're actually going to pick as the winner for this season's prestigious Oscar award the a final movie judgment. award podcast movie award yeah want to start us off with the non-noms the non-noms yeah <coughs> man i could go for some non right now oh man after all that I, chicken yeah e- even so well I non, non isn't non. always food it's <laughs> true every situation okay so let's start off with uh the Ernst Ernst lubitsch and maurice chevalier musicals yeah let's just pull that off like a band-aid <laughs> oh, oh. I know, I'm so mean to them. <laughs> uh, so these musicals uh, did not get Oscar noms from us, unsurprisingly. Uh, the first, The Smiling Lieutenant, got an amazingly high score. We were just discussing this before we started recording. It got an 82 points. Mostly because of costumes and sets and uh, the fact that the sound was pretty good. 
yeah, like little technical details got really pulled up that score. So um, it's the most yeah. passive aggressive way to give something points. Wow. The music was really good. He really liked your costumes. Well, let's be clear. The music itself wasn't no, mind blowing. No. It's just that it was recorded well. It was recorded. It was audible. Unlike like the last couple Chevaliers. Uh, so they um, the the smiling lieutenant, the one that scored really high, uh, follows a familiar formula from past Louis Chevalier uh, romps. Chevalier plays a lieutenant Nicky von Prin. Prine? Prine. I think probably Prine. Prine. A ladies' man in Vienna who falls in love with uh, Franzi, a feisty violinist and leader of an all-female orchestra, played by Claudette, Claudette Colbert. Claudette Colbert. Claudette Colbert. Yeah, say it ten times fast. She would go on to much better things. Oh, that's good. That's good. She was she was good. Oh, yeah, she was fun. Their relationship becomes complicated when King Adolf of Flauschensturm visits with his daughter Anna, played by Miriam Hopkins. Who also went on to better things. I love Miriam Hopkins. <laughs> Nikki leads the military formation that greets them, and when he smiles and winks at Franzi from across the street from the from the procession, Anna catches him and believes that the smile and wink were aimed at her. Initially insulted, she and her father force Nikki to explain himself to them. And when Nikki comes up with a story about how he was so taken with Anna's beauty and, and lonely, uh, the, the lonely and prudish princess falls for him. She insists that he joins their party as an ungent, adjutant, adjutant. I don't know. God, so many words. I know my my mouth is not cooperating with the podcast right now. I think it must be all the chicken and butter. Mm, this is a very chicken. American episode of the podcast. I have to say, like, oh my god, dying. <laughs> sorry, from, sorry like, listener from the Isle of Man. Um, <laughs> we do know you're out there. We respect you. We love you. Love your listenership. Uh, here's a little glimpse into how sad and pathetic our our eating habits are. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and uh, so. He insists that she insists that they that he joined their party as an adjutant, adjutant, who knows? Who knows? And then as her husband. Ooh. Yeah, he, that's that, a big that, leap. that was a bit of surprise. That was a bit of a big leap. But um, I well, mean, su- surprise for for Nikki, not for, not for the audience. No, no. We could see how Anna is just pining away for him. Nikki is torn by his duty and his love for for Franzi. And it takes an unexpected alliance between the two women for a somewhat happy conclusion to be reached. Yeah. And I mean, this is why I have slightly better feelings for Smiling Lieutenant than other Chevalier vehicles and that they actually have the two women kind of just team up and get along, which I found refreshing and surprising. So very, very minor credit goes to them for that. Uh, It sure doesn't pass, you know, the Bechdel test since it's still very much about them swooning over Nikki. But, you know, we'll we'll take what we can get from Lubitsch and Chevalier at this point, I guess. (laughs) All right. So the other Chevalier movie that we watched was uh, One Hour With You, which earned a score of earned. Wow. Earned a score of 55. One Hour With You is set in Paris and is a departure from the usual formula as Chevalier is not a happy-go-lucky military bachelor, but instead a happy-go-lucky married doctor. Named Andre Boutier. Bertier? Bertier. Bertier. Like Bertie. Hey, Bertier. There we go. Gosh, you gave me the ones with the with the difficult names. I I can't I can't say it was by design, but it's really fun from my point of view. 
His adoring wife is Colette, played by Jeanette McDonald. I can do that name. Yeah, that's a nice, sturdy Scottish name. <laughs> Her best friend Mitzi, uh, played by Genevieve Tobin, comes to visit. Mitzi is a flirtatious minx who put, soon puts Andre in her sights. Her husband, Professor Olivier, is pleased by this development as he wishes to gather evidence of her infidelity so he can divorce her. Although Andre tries to resist Mitzi's advances, he soon gives in, leading to various romantic and comedic misunderstandings. Ugh. Oh, that Mitzi. Yeah. That's the one song that, that I'll ever head. remember from a Maurice Trevelyan movie. Yep, because he says Mitzi over and over and over again. All in all, both of these movies didn't offer much beyond the occasional flashes of absurdist humor. They tend to have a bad taste, and when it comes to the sexual politics and the plots, uh, it leaves something to be desired. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm all for kooky musicals being nominated if they're of the quality that's worthy of nominations. But, you know, when you just look at the movies going on, around this year, like Frankenstein came out this year. Um, I think that musical comedy, that musical comedy. No, that's later with a uh, young Frankenstein. Um, and, you know, I think animal crackers, speaking of musical comedies came out in that year. Mm. The fact that these were nominated, but those movies weren't is just kind of like, why Academy? Why? I mean, I guess good production values, but that really shouldn't be the defining reason right. why they get nominated. Could be that Lubitsch muscle. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, dude made movies, I think, at least until the, well into the 40s. So he had something going and, for him. I'm and he just, had goons, right? Probably. Hired a goons? Goons. Hired goons. So, yeah, no nominations to be found in the Chevalier camp. Yep. And I'm pleased to leave them behind and go and take the train to the Shanghai Express, which earned a very... Uh, generous 98. So it's probably our highest scoring non-nom of the year. I believe you are correct. Okay. Joseph, Zon Joseph von Starnberg's Shanghai Express takes place during the Chinese Revolution of 1932, where we follow a group of disparate first-class passengers on the train to the Shanghai of the title. Top of the list is Marlena Dietrich's Shanghai Lily, a woman of notorious reputation whose traveling companion is fellow coaster, as they're called instead of, you know, ladies of the night or any other such pat little name, Hui Fei, played by Anna Mae Wong. Also aboard is Lily's former lover, Captain Harvey, a surgeon played by Clive Brook. The two are obviously still in love, but are halted in rekindling their romance when passenger and secret revolutionary leader Henry Chang, played by Warner Oland, unfortunately in Yellowface, uh, takes the train hostage with a group of revolutionaries. Soon, Harvey is used as a bargaining chip between the revolutionaries and the government, as he's needed to perform surgery on an important official. Yet the exchange is complicated by Chang's lust for Lily and Harvey's jealousy. It will take Hui Fei's... Hui Fei's Speaking of names that I'm stumbling over, we'll take Hui <laughs> Fei's heroism to save the day for the lovers and the passengers. Although a fascinating movie with a fascinating cast, the surreal nature of the movie leaves the audience a little emotionally detached, not to mention Olan's yellow face casting. We passed on giving it a not scrinam. Yeah, it was. It was um, very close for me. Yeah, it was It was close. Um, a A solid picture. All, all half yellow face aside. Uh, yeah, I feel like there were like 
little hints of a more interesting movie there with the shots we had of like the lower class passengers kind of mm-hmm. packed into the cattle car. They were only interested really in the first class. Yep. Yep. It was um, it was a good effort, Shanghai Express, but you didn't quite make the cut. Didn't quite make the cut. And I feel OK about it just because our actual noms, not to speed too much ahead, are pretty excellent this year. Yeah, they really, really are. But let's uh, let's finish up with our last non-nom with uh, Aerosmith, which earned 81 points. So, yeah, not too far behind. uh, Yeah, yeah, not too far behind. Seems fair. One point behind the Smiling Lieutenant. Yeah, I regret that now, but (laughs) oh, Lord. Maybe maybe we're harsh. Maybe we're just a little bit too harsh on Aerosmith. I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe because uh, Cassandra was talking up the book, I was just expecting a little more from the movie. That that could be it, yeah. frankly. Let's just blame your wife. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's see. Aerosmith, John Ford's Aerosmith follows the career of Doctor Martin Aerosmith. Surprisingly enough, yeah, played by Ronald Coleman. His ambition to work for Doctor Max Gottlieb, a noted bacteriologist, is interrupted when he falls for a nurse, Leora. Played by Helen Hayes. Fantastically by Helen Hayes. Yes, she's amazing. Though she's the number one reason to see this movie. Absolutely. They marry and move to her hometown in South Dakota where he gets or he uh, sets up shop as the town's only doctor. Town of something like 300 people or something like that. It's It's a cute setup. It is a very cute kind of farm setup. However, when the town's cows get sick, he dabbles in veterinary science and develops a serum to cure them. This captures Gottlieb's attention and uh, all the way back in New York, and he convinces Aerosmith to come work for him in New York. There, after a few years of struggling, uh, Aerosmith develops a serum that kills germs. He's a big serum guy. Yeah, he's really into serums, and they don't really clarify just like, oh, it kills germs. Yeah, the end. Wipe our hands on that one. (laughs) So what does it do? Well, it's a serum that kills germs. That's good for doctor stuff, right? (laughs) right (laughs) okay so when the bubonic plague breaks out in the west indies he agrees to take his serum there and inoculate the islanders alongside dr sondelius and dr marchand uh so sondelius is like this like very basically gregarious swedish guy and yeah marchand is a is a doctor from howard university from howard university uh a very dignified, sensitive portrayal of an African-American that shouldn't be such a big deal, but is considering like right. last year's best picture winner, which had very offensive portrayals of black people. So, you know, little tiny inch forwards with huge steps back along the way. Yeah, but, you know, you know, it's played fantastically well. Yeah. Marchand and, and Sondelius as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Gotta love Sondelius. I, I liked I liked their acting jobs here. They did. I wish I'd written them down this time, but we mentioned their names in the uh, in the episode about Aerosmith. Yeah, go listen to that. Yeah, go listen to that. Come on, dummies. There, he's torn uh, in that's Aerosmith in the West Indies, torn between following the scientific method and saving all of his patients, along with his desire for the, the beautiful Joyce Lanyon, played by Myrna Loy for about a hot second for a hot second because they ended up cutting out most of her scenes because they didn't want to focus on their leading guy being a cheater (laughs) so yeah it 
might might have uh, turned things a little bit sour on. Yeah. But, you know, that sort of complication is where drama is built. Built, exactly. So that's that's a point strike against it in my book. Yeah, for sure. Um, he's also torn between the um, this new lady and the heartbreak of losing his the love of his life, his wife, uh, when she dies. She dies. It's uh, very sad. It, it is very sad. <laughs> by the time she she he returns to New York, he is jaded by the publicity hungry head of his institute and decides to strike out on his own. The film is too episodic in its attempts to follow Sinclair Lewis's novel and unfortunately too underwhelming as a whole to earn an Oscar nom. Although Helen Hayes gives maybe the best performance of the season, Coleman is miscast in the title role. Yeah, um, he goes on to bigger and better things. It seems to be the bio, the through line for these movies. Oh, this actor went on to better things. This actor went on to better things, but he truly did. Right. And this wasn't terrible. No, this wasn't terrible. It was just a bit boring and just underwhelming and also depressing. <laughs> <laughs> There's that, but not depressing in the right ways. No, I mean. I would have, I would love to see him cheat on his wife like, and, and then be heartbroken even more so. Yeah, exactly. Like get a little life into it. And Coleman, he's a good actor, but just strikes me so wrong for this type of character. Mm. Um. So, yeah, no not nom for you, Aerosmith. So shall we go on then to our actual not noms a movie award award for awards? Movie award podcasts, movie award for movies. For movies. It's some combination of those words that I say. Yeah, it's, we got all the words in. Movies and awards. Well, this one, the first one we're going to talk about, Five Star Final, won a whopping 117 points from us. And I think it earns every single one. I think it's our top scorer. It looks like it, just given a cursory glance. Of course, yep. that doesn't mean anything. What it comes down to is our final decision. I'm not going to even think about the points. But it is a great movie. So kicking off our Notsker noms is Mervyn Leroy's exceptional five-star final, starring Edward G. Robinson. Robinson is Joseph W. Randall, the jaded managing editor of tabloid paper The Evening Gazette. His efforts to raise the paper's prestige by publishing articles of real human interest are thwarted by the low circulation. And his bosses instead assign him to follow up on a story that caused a lot of scandal 20 years previously. The story of Nancy Voorhees. No, it's not Jason Voorhees' mom, unfortunately. We got her story in Friday the 13th. This is a totally different Voorhees. Aw. I know. We're all disappointed. But could it be? Could it be? Because Could it be Jason Voorhees' grandma? Well, heck. Because... Yeah. Not to ruin it, we don't know what happens to her daughter. That's true. Oh my God, my fan fiction is going to be epic. Well, this Voorhees is still a killer. She had been acquitted of killing her boss, who had impregnated her and then abandoned her. She is now living with her loving husband, Michael Townsend, and her engaged daughter, Jenny, who knows nothing of the scandal and thinks Townsend is her biological father. And what really charmed me right away is just how loving this family seems. I mean, it's kind of in a, gosh, nothing bad's going to happen today. But <laughs> they also do have like just all really good chemistry. And you just get the sense this is a happy family. And so a dread yeah. sort of creeps in because, you know, it's. Yeah. And uh, those two were stage actors, weren't they? They were. Yeah. And again, I think I'm very pleasantly surprised by all the stage actors in, in the movies this year. They all mm -hmm. like Hayes, especially like really perform very naturally and very comfortably in front of the camera, which is very hard, I think, for someone trained on the stage. So Randall sends reporters such as the creepy and lecherous Isabod, played by Boris Karloff, speaking of Frankenstein, 
and ruthlessly ambitious Kitty Carmody, played by Ona Munson, more well known to you for, as uh, Belle Watling in Gone with the Wind, to cover the case. Their harassment and the paper's coverage drive Nancy, and sadly eventually her husband, to suicide, leading to an emotional denouement between the heartbroken Jenny and the guilt-ridden Randall and his bosses. This is an emotionally powerful film with a still relevant message about the responsibility newspapers carry. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. Go it's, go out and watch it. It's I mean, it's a roller coaster, but like everything about it just works because I feel like in this movie, there are so many different genres that blend together so well. You kind of get the sort of screwball atmosphere in the newspaper scenes you'd get in something like His Girl Friday. Mm-hmm. But you also get just real like human drama that really hits you because you learn to really love the Townsend family. Right. And so to see those two worlds collide in a way that ends in death and heartbreak it's it's tough but really well earned they definitely probably got the highest score possible in boldness that's for sure yeah yeah they um they took some risks making us love that family that much and bringing that much tragedy upon them yeah i mean it's i mean it works it works so up next we have the champ a slightly different movie. <laughs> it's slightly different. Still a family tearjerker. Yeah, with uh, 94 points uh, coming in. King Vidor's The Champ Follows the Highs and Lows of former heavyweight champion Andy the Champ Purcell and his plucky nine-year-old kid, Dink, in Tijuana. The two are played by Wallace Beery and Jackie Cooper, respectively. And yes, this is the movie, if you recall, is the prequel we've decided to do another movie called Skippy. Yep, and eventually that will lead to the sequel, uh, the Columbo uh, episode that Jackie Cooper stars in, where we see Skippy's struggle with uh, life and politics and murder. Yeah, listen to that episode to uh, see if you can follow through. Yeah, through, through please that do. Thread. And also check out that uh, Columbo episode. It's really good. It is really good. Shout out to my pal Columbo. So uh, Dink, played by Jackie Cooper, has faith in his father and... Uh, believes that he can fight again. Despite this, uh, Champ is continually falling back on his vices of drinking and gambling. At one point, he wins his son a horse, and they enter it into a horse race. And they, uh, when they're at this horse race, well, first of all, like, against all odds, I thought the horse does surprisingly well. Yeah, he only, he, he like, stumbles at, at like, the very end, so it doesn't doesn't quite win but uh yeah little rundown horse horsey does well the champ junior is that what they called it little Little champ Champ, little champ yeah little champ is the horse's name so at the race they run into dink's estranged mother the wealthy married linda and she is played by irene rich linda's motherly feelings are reawakened when she meets dink and although she and her husband eventually convince the champ to uh, let Dink live with them, Dink runs away back to his beloved father. This encourages Champ to take his training seriously and as he prepares to fight the Mexican heavyweight champion, where Dink fears his for his father's safety. Because father's kind of old and uh, drunk, and even though he's recovering, and the Mexican uh, heavyweight champion is a the Mexican heavyweight champion. champion. He's, he's pretty. He's a pretty fit guy. <laughs> the uh, the film climaxes with a triumph and a tragedy where Dink can only find comfort in his mother's arms. Aww. And uh, should we should we reveal what that is? I mean, sure. 
I think we already covered it in the in, in the, the episode. episode. I thought maybe if people were just tuning in for the roundup, maybe they wouldn't want to be spoiled. But I don't know. Let's play. Yeah. Masters. So the, the the tragedy is is poor the champ dies, dies but he wins. Like he does he, win. He so. does win the fight, and he's really excited that he's going to get all that money. He's going to get back little champ, which he had gambled away. Like twice, he gambled twice. that damn horse away. Yeah, I mean, and it could have ended a lot more tragically. The original ending had him die and lose the match, but preview audiences were like, nah, man, nah. So they, they let him win, which I'm glad of, by God. <laughs> I mean, give him that. I, I would have been okay with it either way. I, I would have been pretty upset, but I'm I'm a soft touch. Uh, the film is anchored by the father and son chemistry between Beery and Cooper. Uh, and that is surprising because they, well, at least Beery was kind of a jerk yeah, in real life. Beery was a jerk in real life and just kind of treated, as uh, Cooper said, treated him like he was a dog or something. So, yeah, but that does not come across in the movie. They come, no. they have great chemistry. Yeah, so that is the champ. The champ. Good job, champ. Uh, you won the match and our hearts. Sure, it was a tearjerker. It, it was, was it was great in the truest sense. All right, and now we have Bad Girl who comes in uh, just to point over the champ with ninety five. Despite the misleading title and salacious poster, seriously, look it up. It's like so salacious, so salacious, but nothing at all like the movie. <laughs> Batgirl sure. is instead an immensely likable domestic dramedy directed by Frank Borsage. Sally Ehlers and James Dunn stars Dot and Eddie, two working class New Yorkers who fall in love aboard a boat back from Coney Island. Although initially cynical about women and afraid a relationship will distract him from his ambitions to open a radio shop, and Eddie can't help but fall for the earnest Dot who works as a shop girl. They marry so that Dot can escape from her abusive brother. Their relationship has several stark ups and downs, including a pregnancy Dot is reluctant to reveal to Eddie, fearful he will be upset by the news, as it will take away the funds he saved for his shop. Eddie, meanwhile, who is still in the dark about the pregnancy, thinks Dot is instead upset by their small apartment, hence spends all the money he saved up on a new house for them. Uh... Dot uh, is surprised and touched by this, but also pretty frantic because, oh, God, the baby. Right. So it takes uh, the film's best character and her best friend, Edna, played wonderfully by Minna Gomble, uh, finally to, is the one to break the news to Eddie that she's got a she's got a baby. She's got a little bun in the oven. <laughs> and uh, he becomes convinced that it's Dot who doesn't want the baby and is determined to get her the best doctor. He does so by entering amateur boxing matches. Yeah, uh, there you go. I wonder if he ever met the champ to get the money. Yet Dot misinterprets his absences as a disinterest in the baby and possibly as Eddie stepping out on her. They really the one thing I would point out about this movie is that just sit down and talk to each other. Yeah, there's a lot that would be solved if these two characters I mean, just sat and had a conversation like normal people. I guess that's the point. They're two hot headed young people who don't quite know how to do that. But it's frustrating. It takes a false false health scare for their newborn son for them to realize they both love the child and each other. Although this lacks the big plot points of Five Star Final and melodrama of The Champ, the sincere performances of Eilers, Dunn, and Gomble make Bad, Bad Girl worthy of a Natsukunam. I would agree. It earned it. It's not in my, um, it's not in my pool of picks. No, but... I feel good about including it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was fun. It was um, 
it was by the same director as Seventh Heaven, our first winner. And you really got those same vibes. You really do. He, that guy's got a genius for casting and is just very good at telling domestic stories that, yeah, might have their contrivances, but he creates such good characters that, that it's believable that there would be this kind of like crossed wire communication. All right. And last but not least, we have the um, the award winner of the Academy Award. Not, yeah. not our award. Not yet. We don't know. Don't know. Ooh, what? Winner of the Oscar, not the Notsker, Grand Hotel. All right. With 115 points, it is only two behind our top score, five-star final. Neck and neck. So uh, this year's Best Picture winner from, again, the Academy. And our final Notsker nominee is Edgar Edgar. Gosh, I'm spilling all over the names today. Edmund Golding's All-Star Vehicle Grand Hotel. Taking place in the luxurious Berlin Hotel of the title, we follow a few days in the lives of the hotel's residents. These include the destitute thief Baron Felix von Geigern, played by John Barrymore, who falls for his mark, the fragile ballerina Grusinkaya. Call her Gru. That's what they call her in the movie. Yeah, Gru, played by Greta Garbo. You know, she's she's known. She's known. John Barrymore, he's known. Geigern befriends the dying accountant Otto Otto Kringelein. I almost called him Von Kringelein because there's so many Vons. I mean, it's probably in there somewhere. And uh, Otto there is played by Lionel Barrymore. So the brother of, of, of the John Baron. Barrymore. And they, they come across as brothers in arms in this. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of uh, thinking about it. And uh, this uh, dying accountant is a good man who is determined to live out his final days in style. Both men also befriend poor but spunky stenographer Flemshen, played by Joan Crawford, also a nil-known name. Yeah. Flemshen is hired by pompous industrialist Pricing, played by Wallace Beery, who we just talked about the as champ. the champ, who is also Kringlein's employer. See, they're all intertwined. They are very loosely, but entwined. Pricing becomes infatuated with Flemshen. And is also driven to lie in order to see through a business merger. These stories all collide when the Baron breaks into Pricing's room in order to find money so that he and Gru can go to Vienna together. Pricing catches him and tragedy ensues as he beats him to death with a telephone. Woo! Go Pricing! That's the way to be a real capitalist son of a bee. (laughs) Yeah. And and he makes a lot of uh, dish rags. He, I remember that. A lot of wash rags. A lot of a lot of mop heads. That that that's his business and he sticks to it. When he's not clubbing people to when death with telephone. To, yeah, it's a, that's a side. That's a side business. The beating people to death. The movie is filled with dazzling camera work, sets and performances and it's not hard to see why this took home the big award and earned our final Notsker nomination. Da, 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 da. All right. So, we've listened to all the short summaries. Oh, gosh. Should we discuss before or after? Well, I mean, now might be good just to see if we can either change each other's minds or at least feel more secure yes. in, our, in our choices. Um, I so this shouldn't be too um, surprising. I was not expecting the champ to kind of like jump into the running, but much like much like little champ. 
it it has for me. Yeah. Um, just upon reviewing it, maybe not quite on five star final grand hotel level. Right. But it I mean, for a moment there, I thought like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe, wait, uh, maybe yeah. I like the champ the best. Yeah. I mean, it's about an underdog and it's kind of becomes the underdog. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd say the same for Bad Girl. Um, again, Borsage just seems to have a really good hand for this kind of thing that could have been really maudlin in another person's hands or just been some movie you've been like, oh, huh, that was nice, but then just kind of forgot about. So, you know, kudos to them, too. Um, but you know what? I think we're both thinking that we have two in mind. Yeah, there's the, the two big sluggers here, Five Star Final and Grand Hotel, the two top scorers unsurprisingly. And it's so funny because I've, I'd seen Grand Hotel before. I'd heard of it a bunch. Never heard of Five Star Final. And I think going in, not knowing anything about it really helped blow me away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Energy Robinson d- does his stuff. Does his stuff. Um, everyone did their stuff, though. Everyone did their stuff. It was, yeah, check it out. It's, uh, yeah, I kind of combined everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Grand Hotel, of course, combined every one. Every one. You know, the first all-star vehicle. I mean, which can be, a, you know, a little tricky since I think that was a well the Oscars probably went back to too much. And it became too much of the, here's our all-star vehicle of the year. And so that's like, eh, but, you know, they can wait if with it, it here. Yeah, if it can be done well, if it then, can be, then great. But it's um, I remember as I try to come up with like a cute movie award blank <laughs> saying for Grand Hotels, like, how can you put this movie in a box? It doesn't fit terribly neatly into anything. I mean, because yeah. it just it just takes place in a hotel. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like the hotel doctor says throughout, you know, Grand Hotel, people come, people go. Uh, nothing ever happens. And uh, he's jaded. He's jaded and disfigured from the war. Didn't talk about him in the summary this time around, but that's because he really is just kind of the spectral figure throughout. So there's a lot of little fascinating little details in Grand Hotel that's easy to overlook because you get so focused on the gargantuan cast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And it's so well shot. Oh, my God. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful camera work. I mean, that might be the one edge that I would really give it over Five Star Final of, is the camera yeah, work. Five Star Final was no uh, uh, shrimp on that either, though. They that's had some true. really great shots, like with the with the telephone operators and everything. I still love that. The opening shots of them behind the grate and everything. So. Should we write down who we would give it to right now? Yeah, I think so. And it's yeah. close, guys. It's close. Yeah, I can't. Even right now, I'm, I'm going not, yeah. back and forth. Um, but I'm going to go with my heart on this one. Me too. I think. Uh, <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm going to... Scramble it up a bit. Yeah, I'm going to take these two completely different sized ballots. I'm going to mix them up so we don't know who's who's. Yeah. And we have one vote. For five star final. Oh. And a second vote for five star final. So we have a unanimous vote for five star final. All right. You know, I was wondering if this is going to be the year where we, we disagree. But what, what pushed you over the edge? I think just because, you know, and I, I do feel bad because I get I, there's a frustration where like big message pictures are always the ones to like win when, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to be a big message picture. 
But when it's like this kind of message and portrayed in this human a way, I think it does warrant that much more credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, all the acting was great, as it was in all the movies, really. Mm-hmm. But there was just such a perfect melding of like the different genres of the different like going from comedy to heartbreak to just build and build to that finale that I really think that it's a, it's a forgotten gem. What about you? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking about it. And while I think technically Grand Hotel is probably the is probably the better picture, I went with my heart and I said, OK, which one of these did I actually enjoy watching more? And that would be five star final just because of a lot of the things that you said. The the plot is really engaging, really well acted. Um, not that not that Grand Hotel wasn't. Nope. But um, this one had, I don't know, like you said, like maybe a little bit more oomph to it. A little. And there is something to be said about having something a little less polished, being more impactful in a way. It it felt uh, felt gritty like a newspaper. It did. It did. And, um, you know, I I think there is also the anti-capitalist in me that's like, you know, it is really sad seeing these rich people sad in Grand Hotel, but there is something a little more immediate about the struggles of the people in Five Star Final, frankly. Yeah, I remember when they when they first came on screen, I I like just turned towards you and said like, oh, hey, look, and a middle aged elderly couple that actually get along. <laughs> and and you picked it up uh, pretty quickly. That's like, oh, bad things are going to happen to these people. Yep, yep. But I was I was taken in like a sucker. I know because it is such a rarity, and I think it's a well people do need to go back to is that sometimes just regular people loving each other a lot can really be a good vehicle to tell stories. And so I feel good. I feel as good long as you choice. kill them. As long as you kill them, because that's really what's going to gut punch people. <laughs> um. But yeah, I feel good about our choice. So do I. Um, so, but it was very close. It was very close. I mean, Grand Hotel is always going to be an immortal movie and deservedly so. Yes, absolutely. Go out. How about you go out and watch both? Yeah, go watch listener. both. Do it. Or if you think that we were completely wrong and need to get the record set straight, you can, uh, of course, hit us up on Twitter at ComebackAStar. Or you can email your angry letters to us at comebackastarpodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where you could post on the wall things like, hey, where's this week's episode? And also, hey, you were wrong in the roundup. What gives? And also what I'd love to hear from fellow movie buffs is what movies you think should have been nominated that weren't. You know, I threw out like Frankenstein and uh, Animal Crackers. What else do you think? Uh, I think... um. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came out in this year, both Beery and um, Frederick March tied for best actor March for his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So that definitely should have been nominated too. also starring uh, Miriam Hopkins, actually. So, yeah, let us know uh, what movies the Academy really spaced out on. Let us know how we were wrong. Uh, Let us know how your day is going. And uh, just, uh, yeah, converse, man. Absolutely. Okay. I think we are going to sign off uh, for now. I'm going to turn off the projector and draw the curtains and goodbye. Bye.